Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. Amen. Good morning to you. It is great to be in front of you as part of this The Bible Does Not Say That series. You're going to find out why I'm so excited about that in just a couple of minutes. But first, I want to bring uh, some greetings to you from Peter and Sarah. I had a chance to text back and forth with him this morning, find out what their day looked like in Nairobi. Uh, some of you have been following them, perhaps, but I will tell you that uh, this second week of their trip, uh, he will be posting on both the, the church Facebook page and our Instagram uh, page. So if you're not following us on either of those two uh, platforms would encourage you to do that and get a glimpse of what they're doing. They were in worship this morning at Nairobi Chapel. Uh, they're 10 hours ahead of us, so they have wound up a, a long day and they're pooped. Uh, but uh, they had a great time of worship uh, with the folks there in Nairobi and looking forward to uh, the week that's in front of them, which is going to include some time in the Haruma slum. So I wanted to uh, give you a picture. Uh, I, some of you know I had the chance to be in Nairobi uh, just over a year ago and walk some of the same places that they're going to walk uh, during this week. And so the Haruma slum is where the Faraha Community Center is that, that we have supported. There's a school there and we've done, we've raised some money and we've, we've sent resources over there to, to help with the school. But this slum, this Haruma slum, and there's, there are, I think, five major slums in Nairobi. And what happens, and I'm not going to go through all the details with this, but basically what happens is people in desperate straits move towards cities because there is a, a sense of greater hope there than, than what they're finding out in the remote areas that they're living in. So they flood to the cities, but of course these cities aren't not, are not set up. Uh, number one, they're not set up infrastructure-wise to support such an influx of people. And then there's the, the whole area of corruption that creeps in, and it becomes very, very desperate. And so the, these slums develop, and in the slums of Ni Nairobi, there are hundreds of thousands of people uh, that are living uh, in very, very disparate uh, situations. In the Haruma slum in particular, uh, it's estimated that 30 to 40 percent of the children there are living there as orphans. They're either living with extended family or with neighbors because they've lost parents uh, through AIDS and through other kinds of tragedies. And so 30 per, or 40% of the kids that are there are, are living with uh, extended family or with neighbors. Uh, half the population there is, is getting by on about $1.25 a day, just over $30 a month. The life expectancy, if you're born in a slum, if you make it past five years of age, is uh, just under 50 years uh, is the expect, life expectancy. And so it's a desperate place, and this is where Faraha has set up their work. Uh, they've set up safe houses there. They've, they've set up a school, but they've got safe houses because it's a, it's a dangerous place to live. When we walked through the streets last year, we had to have an escort with some of the people of the, the slum itself. If we would have just wandered through there on our own, it would have been not good. 
And so we've got kids that are, are living in very, very difficult situations. And so uh, Faraha has established these safe houses where uh, children can uh, sleep and get a meal and then get to school. So while we were there last year, uh, we had the chance to, like I say, kind of walk through the streets there. And we wandered down one alley. I'm going to call it an alley. It was kind of a series of apartments, but it was a very dark, narrow walkway. And my estimate was there was probably 10 to 15, maybe 20 families that were living in this, this dark kind of hallway, alleyway. And at the, at the far end, there was an open sewer, open toilet, and a, a bucket for a shower that, you know, 20 families are sharing together. And we went into one, I'm going to call it a, a house. It was kind of a two-room divided by corrugated metal uh, room, and it was pitch black. I mean, we went through the curtains, and it was pitch black. I could not see my hand in front of my face, and there was a, a young gal there, probably 16 to 18 years old, who was a high school graduate, had, gradu had gone, gone through the Faraha school, really was trying to uh, work her way through college, but she has to take care of her siblings, uh, younger siblings. And I don't know where the mom was, but I know that the dad was working as a, a tailor or working, repairing clothes or something like that, making about $30 a month and trying to take care of her and, and her siblings. And so it's just, it, it's a desperate, desperate place. And as you walk through there, you find yourself asking, well, what's the answer? Because it just seems like a cycle that these kids are going to be raised here. They're going to find somebody here. Their family is going to be here. And it's just a cycle that perpetuates itself. And you look, and, and we know this from, from seeing these things happen. We, we recognize that who is most vulnerable here? And it's kids. Kids that are suffering not because of anything that they've done or any particular reason, but because of where they were born and the circumstances they were born into, that they're suffering the way they are. And so when we, when we look at that, and then we look at our own context, and we think about what happens in our own lives, that out of nowhere a terminal illness pops up and maybe takes a family member or something that we struggle with, or parents will lose a child accidents happen, disasters strike, and there's very little warning when these things happen. We, we're, we're often not prepared for what happens. Violence happens on groups, happens on individuals. Lives are destroyed because of decisions that people make. There are physical disabilities that creep into our life. And all of these things create emotional, relational pain, suffering, and it causes us to really question the very foundation of what we say we believe. Beautiful start to the morning, right? But it does, it brings up these questions, and, it, and so that leads us to the statement for this morning. And our statement that I've been charged with in this series is that the Bible doesn't say suffering always comes from sin. The Bible doesn't say suffering always comes from sin. You're going to want to come back next week because we're going to find out that the Bible doesn't say God never gives you more than you can handle. These are kind of interrelated. 
So here's where we've been so far in this series. We've talked about God helps those, well, that we, I should preface this by saying, the Bible doesn't say God helps those that help, themsel help themselves. The Bible doesn't say obedience leads to financial blessing. The Bible doesn't say don't judge others. And one of the things that we've been learning through this series is that there is danger in building a theology or a, a view of life on one particular passage or one particular verse. We can read through the Bible, we can find something, and we, we can build a whole theology around that particular verse, and there's some danger in that. That what's more, more accurate is that we understand context, we understand interpretation, and we understand that, that a more accurate understanding of Scripture is gained when we look at the bigger arc the bigger narrative of what the Bible is about. And so we don't want to build any theology or any view of life on one particular passage. We want to understand what does the Bible say in a bigger, in a bigger narrative of what life is about. So this deeper understanding, for, uh, this, this search for deeper understanding forces us to spend a little bit more time, right? We, we can't just take a cursory view or look at one verse and say, okay, that's good for today, but we need to, we need to go a little bit deeper. We need to understand a little bit, little bit more deeply what God wants us to understand. So this morning, I, I have to tell you that uh, I'm coming today with great humility. That what I want to challenge us on this morning, I believe is what the Bible says about suffering and pain, but I also recognize that there's many people sitting in this room this morning that have experienced tremendous pain, tremendous suffering, either something that you're currently dealing with, that you have dealt with in the past that continues to, you continue to struggle with. I, I, I know that that's a reality. And here's the truth. If you're not in one of those two categories, chances are there is something coming our way that is going to hit us when we are not fully prepared. And so I, I want you to know that I, I come with great humility. Because when we think about suffering and we think about it being connected to sin, the idea that we're speaking against this morning is this idea that there is a one-to-one -one connection with my actions and my suffering. That if I'm going through something, if something's happening in my life, there's gotta be some connection. I must have done something at some time and now I'm getting it. I'm getting it because I did that thing and there's a one-to-one there's a -one connection with my actions and, my, and, the, and the fact that I'm, I'm suffering, I'm being punished for a particular thing. Much in the same way that Pastor Peter was dealing with this idea of prosperity gospel, right? That if we do the right thing and we live obediently, God's going to bless. He's gonna bless you financially, he's gonna bless you with resources, that there's a one-to-one -one connection. If you do this, God will do that. And so this happens because we have this very transactional approach of our, uh, to our faith. And when I, when I talk about this transactional approach, here's what I'm talking about. It's, it's an easy trap to fall into in our spiritual lives. It's this idea that I, I worship God with the expectation of, of God blessing me. I think if, if I worship God, I'll be happy. If I pray the right way, God will answer. He will take care of all my needs. If I just love God enough, he will bless me. 
If I ask Jesus into my heart, he will protect me. And of course, the reverse is true. If, if I do something wrong, the shoe's going to drop and I'm going to get punished for it. And so we have this transactional approach to our spiritual life. Now, this error becomes apparent when we think about life. Like we profess that we love God and, and we pray and we, we come to church and then life happens. Things happen. Disasters strike. Things that we don't expect come into our life. Loved ones, we lose loved ones. And it's easy to fall into this trap because churches are so good at using slick marketing techniques. They lure us in with the promise of spiritual blessing. If you just come and attend, God's going to bless you. And it, and it sounds appealing and it, and it attracts people because they emphasize only the spiritual benefits of being a part of this community. So we come to faith, when this happens, we come to faith not as a member of a community, but as a customer. I've purchased this thing, this spirituality, and so I expect results. I mean, I attend church, I give my time, I give my money, and I expect to get something in return. Faith, my faith will bring me some kind of reward. I mean, I've actually heard people say, man, I tithe for years and years and years, and yet my kids still rebel. How do we create this? How do we create this kind of thinking that if I just do these things, God is going to meet all of my needs? Now, most of us probably would not verbalize it that clearly. We wouldn't say it so much in those words but the reality is that we are on a desperate search to create meaning in our life. That the events of our life have to have, need to have some kind of meaning. And let's be honest, it's usually when the bad things happen that we need meaning. Because I don't think most of us are, you know, when blessings come and good things happen, we, we might feel humbled, we, we are very grateful, we're very appreciative, but it does not create the kind of anxiety in us like, hey, I, I absolutely don't deserve this great blessing. I mean, we're humbled, but we're not saying, hey, no, God, come on, no. We'll, we'll take it. We'll take it. But when the, when the difficult times come, that's when it creates this anxiety and this angst within us because historically, this has been the problem. This has been the problem. This question has been the problem that many people cannot reconcile they cannot get past this idea that there is a good and loving god who's in control of all things and yet suffering and evil exist in the world and this has been the barrier for many many people in their relationship with god and their spiritual life because this is the way it goes this is this is the way it sounds if god is good why would he allow pain why would he allow evil why would he allow suffering without doing something about it? And if God claims to be all-powerful, if God is sovereign, if God is in control of all things, complete control, we like the idea of that. We like the idea of our God being in complete control. If God is in complete control, 
of all things, but he's unable to stop evil and suffering, is he really all-powerful? Is he really all-powerful? And if he's not all-powerful, maybe it's even worse than that. Maybe he's not loving, maybe he doesn't care, and maybe he's even endorsing this suffering that's come into my life. This is the way the reasoning goes. And so we have to come to terms with, what does it mean? What is this suffering? What are these setbacks? What does this pain mean in my life? If it, if it is true that the Bible says it's not connected to one-on-one -on -one to my actions, then what is the reason? Why am I suffering? Why am I dealing with this pain? And so we have these two questions that creep into our life. The, the causation question, we want to know who we want to know the source. Where did it come from? What's the reason? This is not unlike our friend Job. Some of us that have been around church for years and years and years and know the Bible, we know the story of Job. Job had it all. Richest man in his region, large family, loving family, lots of resources, all of it taken from him. All of it. Even his health was taken from him. And so the questions start popping up, and he's got these friends that come and visit him and are saying to him, Job, you got to search your life, dude. There's got to be something you did that caused this to happen. This doesn't just happen. Something caused this, and you need to search your heart and figure out what it is. Really good, supportive friends. So there's this causation question. We want to know... Who and why? This past week, I took some time to sit down with my friend Mike Watkins. And some of you know uh, Mike and Lucy, and you know their story. But uh, years ago, Mike was diagnosed with uh, mantle cell lymphoma and stage four. Uh, and he went through some brutal treatments, chemotherapy, uh, bone marrow transplant, incredibly painful, arduous, I mean, it, it whipped him. But I, I wanted, the, the reason I wanted to sit down with him is because I said, Mike, I need to know what was going through your head. How, how, did, you, how did you reconcile what was happening? And, and the first thing he told me is he said, you know, I found out very quickly that asking why is, is fundamentally the wrong question to ask. Because I'm never going to get, never going to get likely an answer to that question. And it's really, ultimately, even if I did find out why, it's beyond my pay grade to even understand what God is doing. And so that causation question uh, sneaks in there. And the other question that sneaks in is the meaning question. Okay, so maybe I can't identify the cause, but help me with meaning. Is there a purpose? Is it, can I gain some understanding about why and what is going on here so I can understand better what the purpose is. And so these are great questions. And they, we, we seem to have a sense that if we could get the answer to these questions, everything would be better. And I guess my thought is, maybe, but maybe not. I, I don't, I'm not convinced it would be better if we knew every single answer to these questions. And so what I believe happens when suffering, when tragedy, when pain comes into our life, it exposes the gaps. 
in our theology, in our thinking. When things are going great, we can kind of fill in those gaps and kind of gloss everything over. But when tragedy happens, when suffering happens, it exposes whatever gaps are there and they become very evident to us. So let's look at this together. What does the Bible say about the source of pain and suffering? This is, these are legitimate uh, questions. And so I want to make some very, very simple, basic observations about what I believe uh, the Bible says. The first thing I, observation I want to make is this. Suffering is a reality. It's a reality. We experience it. We see it. This world is a dangerous place. Storms come, natural disasters happen, things happen. You look through the pages of Scripture and you'll realize very quickly, it's always been this way. Suffering, pain is a reality. Second of all, pain and suffering is the result of brokenness in our world. I think we look at Genesis chapter 3, that's where it all started with the rebellion of Adam and Eve, and we have continued that trend, and it has led to nothing positive. That rebellion, that sinfulness, that brokenness is evident in our world. It's spiritual. One of the things we know from Job's experience is we know the backstory, right? Job experienced it in his physical world, but we know the story of Job, and we know that there was something going on behind the scenes, right? There was, a, there was an interplay happening in the spiritual realm that Job didn't, he was not aware of, but it was happening. And so we recognize that, that there are times that suffering, that pain, the setbacks we have in our life are happening, there's things happening on a spiritual level around us. And the last real quick observation is uh, it's temporary. It's temporary. My physical life on this earth, 60, 70, 80 years, whatever it ends up being, in comparison to eternity, is just temporary. And we're reminded about that. So fortunately, we are people that believe in the Bible, at least many of us. And maybe some of you are struggling with understanding the Bible and then coming to terms with what the Bible says. But I believe the Bible has some direction for us when we approach suffering in our life. And so let's look at some verses together. If you've got your Bible this morning, I want to begin by really making it clear that Jesus made it clear that our suffering was not, is not necessarily connected to, to my sin on a one-to-one -one transactional basis. So let's look at Luke chapter 13. In Luke chapter 13, uh, there's a conversation happening between Jesus and some uh, folks that are around him. And in Luke chapter 13, first five verses, this is what it says. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And I'm just going to stop there real quick. Apparently this is, this idea of, of terrorists breaking in and terrorizing places of worship, this is not new. Okay, we'll go back to the first century and apparently what happened here was that there was some folks in worship and Pilate sent some people in and had them killed. We don't know the circumstances of the situation, but they were in worship and, and they were killed. So, the so they come to Jesus about this. Hey, these Galileans who were killed, Jesus answered, 
Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Verse 4. Or, Jesus says, those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So again, current events that were happening. Some kind of disaster, disaster happened in Jerusalem. People asking questions like, well, why them? And Jesus is addressing it, saying, hey, they weren't any worse sinners. These things happen. John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus was walking along with his disciples. John chapter 9 and verse 1. says this, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So you can see that the questions that we're asking, this is nothing new. People even in the first century wanted to know who's responsible? Who's responsible for this man's blindness? Did he do it? Did his parents do it? Who? And Jesus makes it clear that sometimes it's neither. That it happens so that the works of God could be displayed in that person. The story of Job is a reminder that what Job was dealing with was not connected with any, any particular thing that he had done. Jesus mentions in the Sermon on the Mount that there are, will be times that we will suffer because of our connection with him as followers of his. That our suffering will be connected with our discipleship. But this seems to be the big question, right? We want to know who is responsible, why did it happen, how can I make it better? And so we're reminded that the, the biblical view of suffering is shaped by what the Bible is. It is this story. It's fundamentally a story of God's creation of the world, where it went wrong, what God is doing to make it right. And we're the part of this grand story that God is making it right. And we look to the day that it will be restored to what God intended it to be. And so, ultimately, when we look at Scripture, we're reminded that if we keep looking back, asking why, we will never get a definitive answer in this life as to why it happened. But the Bible does give us a future to hope for that goes beyond what is happening in my current context to recognize that God gives me, through the pages of Scripture, a picture of the hope that my pain, that my suffering can be transformed into something that would display God's glory. So let's look at the purpose. And I'll try to move through these things relatively quickly. But I, I want us to understand, because I, I do believe the Bible speaks to us about purpose for the things that come into our life. And we're going to land this morning in Romans chapter 5. That's go going to be the, the main uh, passage for this morning. So find Romans chapter 5, looking at verses 1 through 5. 
we'll get a, a, a picture of what a good response or good understanding of suffering looks like. Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Two big ideas here in Romans chapter 5. One is that it's clear that our suffering, our struggles, our trials have a purpose. That there is a reason. Now the question might be, can I always figure out exactly what that reason is? And I will say, sorry, no. No. Now, there may be times that we get glimpses of that, right? God is good. There are times that we get a... a, a a picture, and some of you could probably testify to things that have happened in your life, and you could point right back to this was the purpose. This is what God, why God allowed it in my life. But often we don't get that. But I can tell you that there are some important things that we can understand about the purpose. And the first is this, that these things come into our life to grow us, to strengthen our faith. Romans 5, we've already looked at. James chapter 1, if you want to write these or make notes of these. James chapter 1, James says, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Consider it all joy. Because you know that these trials produce perseverance, character, hope. 1 Peter chapter 1 speaks to this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter was writing to folks that were dealing with a lot of suffering uh, in their own life. And verses 6 and 7 of 1 Peter chapter 1 say this. In this you greatly rejoice. Get the joy thing again. In this you greatly rejoice, though for a little while you have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may prove genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Part of the reason we deal with these things in our life is that it produces strength of faith, it produces genuine faith, it gives us character. We don't like the sound of that, but we, we know that it is true. Secondly, sometimes it's discipline. Sometimes these things come as discipline. Hebrews chapter 12 is the go-to there. I would encourage you to read all of Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read a couple verses from Hebrews chapter 12. But this is what it says. The author says, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Later on in that chapter, he says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who have been trained 
by it. Sometimes the things that come into our life are discipline. Sometimes they come to glorify God. John chapter 9, verse 3, we've already looked at it, but Jesus says that that man's blindness came into his life so that the works of God would be revealed. And over and over and over again in Scripture, we're reminded that God's glorified in the circumstances of our life. And the last thing I want to highlight is this idea that suffering and pain is a megaphone. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. C.S. Lewis lost his wife and struggled with grief. And this is a quote from his book, The Problem of Pain. He says that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. And so oftentimes the things that come into our life are just that. They're a megaphone. Maybe we're, we've become dense of hearing, hard of hearing, and sometimes that we just need God to break through in our life. Mike Watkins called his suffering God's varnish remover. Because the idea is that we've, we have covered over our life, we make it look great on the outside, Every, when people see us, everything is wonderful, everything is fine, everything is great. And then when suffering and pain and trials come into our life, that varnish remover takes that all away, and we're exposed for what we are. And sometimes we need that to happen. So it forces us towards a response, and so I want to kind of wrap up with this, that as we think about this, that there's a purpose, that we need to understand what's the, what's the best way for me to respond when these things creep into my, my life. And the very first thing that I would say when, when we look to these things in our life is that we, it's got to take us right to the cross. It, it has to take us to the cross. At the center of God's story, this story of redemption is the cross. And the cross is this. It's God through the person of Jesus, who was, the New Testament tells us, was God in the flesh, entering, to, entering into suffering for us. So does God understand your suffering? Does God understand your pain? The answer is yes. He's experienced it. Jesus actually entered into physical pain and suffering for us. To defeat evil to defeat sin so that we can be reconciled to God. So our suffering, our pain should take us first and foremost to the cross. Second part of our response is rejoice. We can't escape it. As much as I would like to es escape this, you cannot read through the Bible and, and not be reminded over and over and over again that we are to rejoice in our pain, rejoice in our suffering, rejoice when these things, when these bad things happen. I wish there was another response that the Bible had first and foremost, but it, the, the authors tell us time and time again, rejoice. We've talked about Romans 5. I've mentioned James chapter 1. Listen to Habakkuk in the Old Testament. The prophet Habakkuk says this in chapter 3 of Habakkuk. The fig tree does not but there, is, there are no grapes on the vines. 
Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Time and time again, we're reminded to rejoice as suffering comes. And then the, the last part of our response is this idea of embracing suffering. In a lot of my work in preparation for this message, I was reminded by folks that have done that are a lot smarter than me and a lot more uh, in tune with go what's going on around us. I was reminded that we in North America have a very underdeveloped understanding of suffering. If you've, if you've had a chance to travel or if you've looked at what's happening in other parts of the world, it is in their, suffering is in their face on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis, and we don't experience that. I'll, I'll be honest with you. These last two weeks, I, I don't know what's going on in my neck. I, have some, I think it's God's reminder of suffering, but I got a pinched nerve or something in my neck. And I've been, it's, it's been really bad. But you know what I've been doing? I take some leave and everything seems to be okay. I'm able to make it through my day. So our understanding of suffering is, you know, we, we do whatever we can to get out from underneath it. But the Bible tells us that we need to embrace it. We need to embrace it, first of all, as a way to identify with Jesus. When we look at that, what Jesus went through for us. And we look at even at Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship and participation in his sufferings. When Paul suffered, he was identifying with Jesus. Francis Chan, who is a, a pastor here in California, had the chance to go to, to China. And he got to visit with some Chinese pastors and some pastors that had experienced, there was, a, there was a season in which the Chinese government had kind of lifted some sanctions against the Christian church and they could be more public. But in recent uh, years, they have put the hammer back down on Christian churches and they've had to go underground. And this is what this underground church pastor said. He says, listen, when we were free to worship publicly, we lost our whole DNA. When we were forced back underground, it was so refreshing, the pastor continued. We got our DNA back because the underground church was built on these five pillars. One, we were devoted to the Word of God. Two, we were deeply devoted to prayer. Three, we expected every believer to be out sharing their faith. Four, there was a regular expectation for miracles. And five, we embrace suffering for God's glory. So when we think about our own circumstances here in Hanford, California, we recognize that a lot of those, four of those five, we can say, hey, I'm right with you. The word of God, prayer, sharing my faith, expecting God to work, I'm all with you. It's that embracing suffering, could that be the peace that we're missing? So that we embrace suffering as a way to identify with the person of Christ. And we embrace suffering, secondly, as a testimony to those around us. 
And when we think about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says this. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. That part of the reason that we endure what we have is so that we can in turn offer comfort, peace, and hope to those around us. Later on in this same chapter, Paul says this, we don't want you to be uninformed about the troubles we have experienced. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Paul says it was so bad, they wanted to die. The suffering that they were dealing with. But yet they realized that God had given them a message to proclaim. So we need to embrace suffering as a testimony to others. So this morning, there's two questions I want to finish with. And, and the first question is this. What can I do? This is, this is great. This, this biblical understanding of suffering, I think, is super important. We have to come to terms with that. But a practical question might be, what do I do? What can I offer to someone who is suffering? And I look at the book of Psalms just to get a picture of what some of these folks are dealing with. These are just random, some random verses from the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 6. I'm worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? In Psalm 42, my tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? There's people around us that are dealing with incredible suffering. And we have to ask, what can I do? What's, what's the best thing I can do? And often, we, we wish we had like a magic bullet answer and Mike reminded me, he said, that, man, that's the last thing that I needed to hear. He, he said, what I, what I needed was just someone that would come alongside me. Someone that would say, I'm available. Romans chapter 12 says that we are to mourn with those that mourn. So those that are struggling don't need a deeply spiritual answer, some Bible verse, they just need to know that we love them and that we care for them. And then the second question this morning is this, how can I prepare for this in my own life? This is a good practical question. Because I, I would say the best way to prepare for suffering and pain in my own life is to build a foundation that will withstand that kind of pain and suffering when it comes. Because suffering is likely going to drive me to the foundation that I've built my life on. If I have built my life on self-sufficiency, if I have built it on my own wisdom, if I have built it on my own ability, I will find that lacking. 
when real tragedy, when real suffering, when, when real pain comes into my life. As Mike said, it's the varnish remover of life. It's going to scrape away everything that you've tried to build on and expose who you really are. And so I want to build on a foundation that is going to be secure. What Mike and Lucy realized is that it had to be somebody outside themselves. It wasn't going to come from within. It wasn't going to be some word from the universe. And he had plenty of people that he told me the story about this one person that tried to say, hey, go pay this person $5 and they will give you a, a word from the universe on what's happening in your life. So they realized that they, they needed to go outside of themselves and they landed on the, on the God of the universe, the sovereign creator who gave them comfort, peace, and hope. Hope that went beyond anything that they could generate themselves. Hope within a situation that didn't have very much hope in it. And so I wonder if today... Maybe that's you. Maybe you're dealing with something in your life right now and it just got you whipped. You can't shake it. Maybe there is something in your past that you've not been able to shake and it keeps you in a cycle of despair. And maybe you realize today that the foundation that you're building your life on would not allow you the security or not provide the security in your life when suffering comes. Hebrews chapter 6, the author says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. The answer, the foundation, that that's going to give us real security and strength when, when suffering and when pain comes is the foundation that's built on Jesus himself. And so this morning... I wonder if there's maybe someone here that needed to be reminded and maybe just needs to make a recommitment. You're a believer. You, you've, you've prayed the prayer. You've made the commitment to Christ. But perhaps you have moved aside or strayed away from really building on the foundation of who Jesus is and building a faith that can withstand struggle and suffering when it comes. And I would just say this is a great morning to recommit to say, you know what, this is going to be what I'm building my life on, the person of Jesus. And it could be this morning that you're here and you, you're not a person of faith or you're been, you've kind of been feeling around it a little bit, but you've never made a commitment of your life to build your life on the God of heaven through Jesus. And so when we talk about that, we, we realize we have to come to a point where we admit and we acknowledge that we need God in our life, that we believe Jesus is who he says he is, and that we commit ourselves to follow him with our life. So this morning, you've got a Connect card in your hands. There's a spot on there for you to indicate uh, maybe a need spiritually to receive Christ or to understand more about that. If there's a struggle, though, this morning, something that you need prayer for, that you would love to talk with somebody about, I want to give you that opportunity just to make a note about that. It won't go any further than our staff, I can promise you that. 
But we want to help you walk through struggles that you may be having this morning, and we want to give you the opportunity. That's what that card's for. I don't, I don't want you to walk out of here this morning without understanding the foundation that God wants to be in your life and the strength that he can give you. Let's pray. God, we recognize uh, this morning this is, this, is, this is difficult stuff. There, there are hundreds if not thousands of people through the years that have basically walked away from faith because they cannot reconcile in their mind the fact that there is suffering and evil and pain in this world, and yet there's a good and loving God that, that we claim there's a good and loving God at the center of everything. And so, God, we acknowledge that we don't understand everything, but we are so grateful for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus, for what that means to us as we uh, build our life on this, that it gives us hope outside of ourselves, gives us wisdom outside of ourselves, gives us something to live for that is bigger than ourselves. And so I thank you for that. And then, God, I would just pray this morning for those that are, are dealing with difficult things in their life, that they would understand that you love them, that we love them, and that we can do our best to come alongside and support one another as we walk through this life together. God, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free. And if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.